Welcome to Target Cancer, a podcast about how health technology is affecting lives and changing the world for patients and oncologists. Hi, Dave. My name is Mika Newton. I'm the CEO of a company called Xcures. Uh, we do two things for cancer patients. Um, we help organize data uh, for them. Uh, so we grab all of their medical records and organize it into what's basically a personal health record and an app so they can share it with providers and their care team instead of carrying around binders with all the pieces of paper in it. So we organize do all that organization process for you. Um, and then the other thing we do is for patients who are advanced who have late stage cancers um, where there's kind of no standard of care or no like rule book, um, we help I prioritize, I think, identify and prioritize treatment options they should be discussing with um, their physicians because um, there's really no right answer, but we kind of help do some of the basic research that's hard to do. And we do that free of charge uh, for patients and their doctors. Uh, we have a business around research and trying to advance um, learning and really continuous learning in cancer. And so uh, the reason we do this podcast and the reason for the discussion is really because part of learning is sharing experiences. And so a big part of what we want to do is meet people who've had a journey or an experience in cancer and talk with them um, about what they experienced and what they learned and what did or didn't work. And so the point of all of that introduction was thank you, first and foremost, for coming on the show and tell us about you and your experience. Um, and we can start from there. Well, thank you for uh, for having me. I'm, I'm I'm always pleased to share my story, and and if it helps others, that's that's uh, really what I'm here for. So, um, you know, my history is in the Lynch syndrome space. So, uh, uh, as much as I have been identified as a, a colon cancer survivor for a couple of times, as well as a kidney cancer survivor, um, I I typically identify myself as a Lynch syndrome survivor. Uh, because mm -hmm. it is different than just, let's say, a colon cancer survivor. Um, so my history with cancer goes back to, you know, before me, but, you know, my grandfather had colon cancer in his 60s. My father had colon cancer in his 40s. Um, both, you know, lived well into their 80s. My father actually literally just passed away uh, last month at, at sorry. 88. Um, but, you know, after having cancer three times, that's a pretty good run. Um so my cancer, my first colon cancer was at uh, 29 back in 1997. And talk about carrying around the scrapbook, right? Right. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, I had the, the, the typical colon cancer symptoms of, uh, you know, of, of bleeding, blood in the stool, uh, cramping. But, uh, you know, it was one of those things. It was, I was misdiagnosed, believe it or not, even though I had it right on the uh, then paper chart, you know, the whole family history of colon cancer there. Um, it wasn't until, uh, several months uh, of going Was Lynch syndrome, not so well understood at the time. I think it's, it's better understood now, but what, I guess the question is when was your Lynch kind of diagnosis and how did that kind of play yeah. into that? Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's really what comes down to the root of the story, uh, is, is people really weren't talking about genetics in 1997, let alone Lynch syndrome. Uh, they were just starting to talk about, uh, other genetic syndromes like BRCA, uh, but mm -hmm. they really were not talking about Lynch. And, and unfortunately, uh, even today, it's still not as talked about as it should be. It wasn't until uh, my second colon cancer in 2007 that uh, the discussion of Lynch syndrome came up and I was ultimately had the genetic testing. And, you know, as, as we say, the rest was history. Um, but because of the Lynch syndrome diagnosis, uh, I started having other types of diagnostic testing done. Uh, besides just a colonoscopy, uh, I started having, you know, CTs, chest, abdomen, and pelvis, uh, cystoscopies. And, and ultimately, I found a, a very small 
uh, renal carcinoma on my right kidney. Um, I don't want to say it was easy because nothing's ever easy, but compared to the other cancers, it was relatively uh, benign and cut and paste. And uh, I think I played a soccer, uh, coached a soccer game that, that night and it was a bad well, idea, but I did do it. And yeah, I was just going to say that's not easy. Yeah, it was, it no. wasn't smart, but you know, men are not smart. So I'll chuck yes, it up. I'm with you on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And my brother has uh, a brother had colon cancer at 37. He's now, how old am I now? I'm 54. So he's 59. So yeah, the, the book hero in the family is that we live very long energetic, vibrant lives post uh, cancer, if not multiple cancers. Multiple cancer. And of course, Lynch syndrome means, so are you then on a, just like a totally different screening protocol than like, because of your Lynch, right? You, you, you're being actively monitored. Is, am I understanding that correctly? Correct. Yeah. So um, in the education process, so one, one of the, the points I always uh, talk about with people is uh, even with cancer in your family, do, were you kind of very aware of cancer, I guess, maybe from your, your father's experience, right? Because I think of people who know about cancer, are either people who work in cancer or have cancer, right? The general public doesn't spend their time researching cancer. I would say it's just like not a fun thing to do in your it's free like time. Right, exactly. Um, right. Um, and so um, how, how did that education take place for you and your family? Like where, what was useful and valuable and how did you kind of come up that uh, education curve? You know, for the most part, it, it you know, in, in looking back, uh, we really did not talk about it that much, believe it or not. Um, it, you know, it was there. Um, and it was actually it was it was very there for my grandfather because he ultimately had an ostomy. And if you've ever been around somebody who has an ostomy, it's not an easy thing. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it no. that, that way. Um, but my father did not have an ostomy. So for the most part, uh, it was almost like the rite of passage you continue on. So we really didn't talk about it that much. But like I said, it actually was there on my chart. You know, you, you know, uh, I was, you know, in, in your 20s as a male to actually have a primary physician is kind of rare even to this day. I mean, men don't go yeah. to the doctor unless there's, you know, a limb hanging off. Um, so I was th the fact that I was going to a primary care physician and that it was already on the chart. Uh, it should have been. I yeah, know it's interesting. You, you make a great point because try to, you know, my wife is constantly like, why haven't you been to the doctor yet? And I'm like, oh, well, nothing hurts right now. <laughs> right. So it's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it, again, it was not, it was not like a, a, um, a kitchen table conversation. It was always there. It was always something, you know, in, you know, like I said, in the back of our, our minds and, it's significantly there now. So where did you, how did you learn about Lynch syndrome? Were there resources for someone? So if someone finds out like maybe they have a family history of cancer or they go and they get some genetic testing they hear they have Lynch syndrome and they suddenly have to learn about this, this new subject or, or where are the good resources? Like what, what would you recommend? You mean like now? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, uh, obviously I'm biased, but you know, we, we started a foundation, um, yeah, so um, so we have some pretty good resources. At least I like to think we do. Um, you know, on our website that talk about um, getting involved with uh, our Lynch syndrome registry, uh, how to find uh, specialists in in different parts of the country, uh, talking to a genetic counselor, talking to a high risk oncologist, things like that mm -hmm. are, are brought up on 
on the Alive and Kicking website. Um, but you know, it's interesting that you ask it is because when I had my wife and I founded Alive and Kicking in you know in two thousand nine. Uh, not in mm-hmm. 2000, back in 2011, 2012, simply because we really did not see an advocacy space for Lynch syndrome. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I had colon cancer twice, I was always the, the, the guy in front of the microphone uh, on behalf of colon cancer, which is fine, and I didn't mind doing it. But realistically, uh, with, as you alluded to, a Lynch, Lynch syndrome being very specific and different and uh, more than just colon cancer, we felt compelled to start the foundation. Got it. And so how many, how, it's how just, you started Alive and Kickin' and then you said you have a registry. What are the programs like Alive and Kickin' is, is, is working on? So the, originally the, so back a few years ago, the Genetic Alliance, uh, Sharon Terry, uh, had created something called the Peer Platform. You may be familiar with it. And uh, we were chosen to be the Lynch syndrome component. So it's a patient-driven registry. So Patients upload their own data. They de- they declare their own privacy settings. They can share it with whoever they want. They can share it with nobody if they if they deem so. Um, so it's it's not one of those. Uh, it, it's it's you know it's agnostic. So it's not based around one specific institution. So you know my hospital Mount Sinai may have its own registry. Uh, Cornell may have its own registry. And MD Anderson, you you get my point. Uh, yeah. Ours is not. It, it it doesn't overlap and it doesn't you know it doesn't change anything with theirs so it's patient driven um what is what has worked out very nicely is that the, it everyone who is in the registry is consented appropriately this is this is an IRB approved uh, consenting process so that um if they decide to you know share their data um which actually literally 99 percent have uh, most of most of the lynch patients that i know and you know, both pre-vivors and survivors are like, yeah, by all means, share the data with, with the world um, if it's going to come to research. We actually have researchers reaching out directly uh, to the patients, um, work on the projects that researchers, you know, what the patients want to actually talk about. Excellent. Yeah, no, I, I you know, I, I'm a huge believer in sharing information. I think what happens with a lot of medical information is it ends up in these like, um, I would call them inadvertent silos. Like it's not siloed on purpose. There's like no malintent, you know, anything like that. It's just that under our privacy laws, which are really important, right? The data about anybody's treatment belongs really between them and their physician. And it's usually stored in some provider system, right? Somewhere. And even that provider system then is pretty significantly limited from um, sharing it with anyone as they should be. Right. 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 And, um, for me, the really interesting thing, and I've thought about this a lot over the last three years, is really the power that patients, right, and we all have as individuals to really unlock our data. Because the one kind of free agent advocate who's out there, who's truly empowered to to do things, right, is you and me, like with our own data, right? Because I can give you anything I want. You can give me anything we want, and I can give you rights to like use my information for different yeah. purposes. And so I really applaud you guys for what you're doing is bringing the, the reason, because it's one thing to have the information, but I don't know, you know, without having a reason or an organization like yours, right? Like, where would I put it? Like, what would I do with it? Right. And what purpose do I want it to have? Um, um, 
overall. So I spend a lot of uh, thinking of that. And, you, you know, it's really changing uh, very rapidly. So the last um, few years around patient's right of access, right, to medical records and ability to now you can get all of your physician notes, for instance, right, that you weren't able to really see before. Now it's mandated by law that you have to be able to see your actual progress notes and, uh, you know, uh, pathology interpretation and all this stuff that I don't think any of us really realized we weren't able to see like it, like you kind of didn't know it was there because yeah. many times you just didn't know it was there, or, yeah. right? Nobody told you about it. Um, I think that's going to really revolutionize our understanding um, uh, uh, overall. So in the Lynch syndrome world, um, I hear often from Lynch syndrome patients, right? There's all this kind of, well, what can we do? We can do a lot of, um, uh, I think, prevention, right, which is more screening, uh, people have, you know, much more, I would think of as radical surgeries than they would have otherwise, right, um, uh, or make choices that are frankly further along. But what's what's happening? What's new in Lynch syndrome? And what, what are the, the kind of emerging, what's the emerging thinking in therapy like? What are you excited about that we've kind of made progress on recently that's changing things? Well, the the the, uh, the biggest thing in in our world has been the immunotherapy. Um, mm -hmm. the, the hallmark of uh, of Lynch syndrome tumors is that uh, it's MSI high. So uh, I think you know talk about you know most people are unfamiliar with healthcare. Most people are unfamiliar with politics. I think immunotherapy is a word that has reached uh, the public, uh, which mm -hmm. we're excited about. So uh, you know if you're if you're in the Lynch syndrome space and you have, you know, this 80% chance or up to an 80% chance of developing cancer, um, and they have a certain biomarker, they have a certain, you know, blueprint, if you will, that says, you know, here's, here's your, here's your tumor. It's going to look like this. And you have the ability to potentially fix that. I mean, are you kidding me? This is crazy. Um, so the, the immunotherapy world has really been a game changer. Uh, we are seeing Lynch patients who are, who, who, like me and, and a lot of others, find out about their mutation by developing cancer probably at a very late stage and probably very young. Mm -hmm. um, and they're being treated with immunotherapy, um, in some cases as a first line, and they're seeing just improvement, you know. In, Immediately. It, it's remarkable. Um, so is, uh, is, is a vaccine a topic of conversation? Absolutely. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think there's going to be a vaccine for Lynch in my lifetime. Um, at the same time, you also have studies taking place uh, with aspirin, uh, you know, with Sir John Byrne and in, in at Newcastle, uh, yeah. and uh, naproxen with Dr. Uh, Valar Sanchez uh, at MD Anderson. I mm -hmm. mean, these are all showing wonderful, wonderful results. Um, so yeah. tell me about the vaccine stuff. That's super interesting. So I see a lot more. So I, I've done a lot of work um, uh, as our company has in like brain cancer, for instance, brain, kind of our specialties are brain, pancreatic, um, colon, uh, bladder, uh, ovarian. Those are kind of the places we started kind of doing deeper. We, we work with patients across the board, right? Sure. But those are kind of been like specialty areas. And particularly in brain cancer, these kind of things like neoantigen vaccines mm -hmm. uh, and other other forms of kind of personal vaccine of just they're they're exciting and they're new um and they're showing some promise T tell me about uh, when you say that in your lifetime there's going to be a vaccine for lynch what do you think that looks like um uh, it's going to be uh, it, 
uh, you know, I, I'm wearing a, a, I'm wearing one hat today. So the, the patient hat says to me, uh, someone's going to come up with the cocktail that's going to uh, show the most promise for preventing, um, you know, I'll backtrack a little bit. So uh, Lynch syndrome is a mismatch repair deficiency. So mm -hmm. there is, there is something that causes uh, someone with a Lynch mutation to, you know, stop fixing itself. That's, that's the nuts and bolts of it. So uh, I have MLH1, but another person may have a PMS2, you know, the case, and right. someone may develop cancer uh, like me at 29. Uh, like I said, my brother at 37, uh, you could have a different person in, in the same family with the same mutation develop cancer at a certain time. We don't know at this point what is causing the, the mutation to kick in and for you to stop repairing yourself. So there's going to be you know, uh, a pretty significant study that will take place eventually that will, you know, try the different cocktails of uh, what is going to prevent uh, that mutation from turning into, uh, to, to essentially stop repairing itself. Uh, I don't know what it is. Um, I don't want to pretend to uh, to know the science completely uh, or, or in, in a significant detail, but it's going to happen. Cool. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm, I'm really excited about this. I think we're, we're, we're finally seeing some real progress. I think um, the piece that uh, I've been scratching my head about, right, and we've been thinking about a long time is just, uh, as you talk about, there's a cocktail. So the curse of dimensionality is the way that what we think about it is, as soon as you have more than one thing, right, so you start getting three, four, five, six, seven, now we're starting to get like things, right. and we start having individual differences between all of us, like in precision and personalized medicine, right? then the combinations start to like, if you just start, you know, it's A plus B plus C plus B plus C plus A plus, right? All the different possible combinations you can create rapidly like it explodes. And yeah. I think the ability to run some of the types of um, traditional studies that have been run for a long time um, just goes away. I mean, it's, it's mathematically possible, but operationally impossible right, um, to do, yeah. right? So there's always some design component to it. Um, and so I'm really excited actually about what you were talking about with what you guys are doing with the registry. I think these types of registry data and real world data and really understanding that we can actually learn the lessons from real life practice. Um, uh, but that, that takes some intentionality, right? You, yeah. you have to set out to do that. Um, um, and maybe that's something I'll, I'll reach back out to you. That'd be a very interesting uh, discussion about uh, registries and how to use them and where the data could come from. So um, maybe a, a, another another topic for another date. But um, well, we certainly uh, have a big enough population to work with because you know <laughs> if, if you've seen the statistics or heard the statistics about Lynch, where it could be as much as one in two hundred and seventy nine yeah. like Americans. I mean, that's just a there's a million people in the U.S. walking around with a Lynch mutation and they don't know right. about. It. It's as prevalent as everything we hear about in breast cancer and the mutations in breast cancer is my understanding. And it's just not as well discussed for whatever reason. Um, I'm not Angelina Jolie. Yeah, me neither. Me neither. So um, you're closer than I am. You Yeah, no, <laughs> no chance. Um, so uh, let's, uh, I guess maybe one, one last thing I always like to ask people, any like single word of advice for patients, maybe find out they're newly diagnosed um, or going first into their cancer journey? Um, uh, just kind of like a final statement. Well, that's a broad one, but uh, you know, in, in the cancer journey, I, I always recommend having someone next to you who, who, uh, who's really good at taking notes. Um, 
because that's that's really what it comes down to. You, you once you have your first cancer diagnosis, you 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 feel like you're floating, you're hitting the head hitting the head with a frying pan. You're just kind of overwhelmed. Having someone next to you that's uh, going to take down the details and allow you to yeah, and help you and go through it later. Uh, that would that's always my first word of advice, and I've always had the. I call it the luxury of at the good fortune of having my wife uh, at my side for all of this, including running the foundation. And um, because of that, I'm able to do what I do and and absorb it and and keep going. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Dave. Appreciate it. Thank you. Got it. So um, I'm going to add Brian and Amanda. So thanks for doing that, uh, Dave. And let's um, we're going to change format. I got to make the. I think Brian's come on. Hey, Brian, can you hear us? Yeah. Uh, hey, guys. Hey, guys. And Amanda. Hi. Look at that. And Amanda. It's like Hollywood Squares here. I love it. it. <laughs> apologies for the dog. And apologies. I mispronounced your, your first name. I'm sorry. But I didn't do it on the air. No, no, it's fine. Um, I, I have a really bad joke, I always say, which is I get called a lot of things and I answer to most of them. So, right. So in the day ain't over yet. It, it's, that's right. We just got started. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. So uh, my name is Mika Newton. Um, just for background for Amanda and Brian and Dave, um, uh, for all of you, um, I am the CEO of a company called Excures. Um, we're a technology company. We work with advanced cancer patients. We do two things really help them organize their data across multiple providers. So if they've been to see lots of different doctors, different provider systems, we actually pull, organize, and aggregate their medical records into a personal health record they can use, you know, instead of walking around with the big binder um, full of um, notes. Um, the other thing we do as a company is we've developed um, some algorithms and technology platform-based um, uh, tools to enable us to identify treatment options. So based on the data that we aggregate from the record, right, we're able to say, these are the top five things you and your doctor should think about as a starting point for your discussions, right? There's usually no answer in these complex cases. Nobody knows what to do, but we can help kind of synthesize the research um, so that people don't have to go and search for it online on Dr. Google, uh, basically, and, and really try to add some value from um, kickstarting the conversation. So that's what we do. Um, the purpose of the podcast um, that you're on, and thank you all for coming on, is really um, to really try to create some educational uh, content, um, because in addition to data and technology, um, we all have stories, and I think we learn from each other's stories and sharing them um, overall. So um, uh, why don't we start with that was my introduction. Why don't we start with introductions? Maybe we'll go, uh, Dave, you go first, and then Amanda, and then Brian, and then um, what the topic I'd like to get into after introductions is kind of how do we talk with our families and with each other um, about cancer, and what should we be doing uh, together? So, uh, Dave, I will kick it over to you um, for an intro, and we'll go from there. Well, thank you, Mika. So I am uh, Dave Dubin, and I am the co-founder of Alive and Kickin', which is a foundation for Lynch syndrome. Uh, I do, in fact, have Lynch syndrome, and I am a colon cancer survivor twice and a kidney cancer survivor just once. So um, happy to be here and happy to handle any questions or discuss anything you want. Thank you, Dave. Amanda? <laughs> Sorry, my connection's kind of in and out. <laughs> um, am I just introducing myself? Is that what's going on here? Yes, <laughs> please introduce yourself. 
Yep. Sorry. Um, introductions. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm Amanda. I'm um, 33 years old when I was diagnosed back in May. Um, I have rectal cancer and um, I have not had genetic tests. I don't know if it's genetic related yet. There's apparently a year wait list for that. So I'm still waiting to find out about that. But as far as my oncologist thinks, he doesn't think it's a genetic um, diagnosis. So um, yeah, I'm also in Canada. <laughs> if that's yeah. <laughs> and Brian, go ahead. Uh, hi, um, uh, my name is Brian Novak. Um, uh, I know Dave <laughs> uh, from the Colon Club. Um, I'm also a colon cancer uh, survivor, as well as a few other cancers. Um, so I, I was diagnosed uh, with stage three colon cancer when I was 36 uh, in 2009. I had genetic testing done at the time, and um, at the time, nothing came up <laughs> uh, that pointed to, you know, why I had uh, cancer. Um, ten, yeah, uh, ten years later, diagnosed with testicular cancer and had genetic testing done again, and I, I tested positive for a pretty rare genetic uh, syndrome called Lee-Fraumeni syndrome, um, which is uh, basically means that I have a, a non-functioning p53 gene. You know, uh, everyone has two copies of this this gene um, from each of your parents, and one one of mine is not working, <laughs> right? And as a result, um, I'm predisposed to a lot of cancer, and so. Uh, 2019 testicular cancer, last year in 2020, lung and thyroid cancer. Uh, and on Tuesday, I'm having a biopsy on my kidney because um, I have a one centimeter lesion on my kidney. So I may have a fifth cancer, which is, uh, you know, I'm, only, I'm 49 years old and to have uh, four or five cancers is uh, kind of where I'm at. So I'm sorry, Brian. What was the name of the syndrome? Leaf. I want to say it right. It's it's, uh, it's two different doctors who discovered this genetic mutation, Doctor Lee and uh, Doctor Fraumini. So um, if you search uh, LFS syndrome, um, Lee Fraumini syndrome, or just LFS mutation, you'll find it. I'm going to go with LFS for today because yeah. <laughs> then I'm not going to slaughter it the ten times. Um, so interesting. Yeah. Um, just a quick question about LFS, um, new subject for me. Um, is that uh, hereditary? Is it passed down? Is it something from your family history? It's um, yes. However, uh, no one in my family has it. So uh, in my case, it's a what they were calling de novo mutation, which um, is supposed to be less... Uh, uh, penetrant, I guess, less severe. However, um, I'm proving that to be wrong. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm sorry uh, to hear that. Yeah. And um, I'm also a type one diabetic. <laughs> yeah. You got a lot going on. Yeah. Other than that, I'm pretty healthy. Oh uh, yeah. How about your <laughs> mountain biking accidents? Oh yeah. And uh, I, I do some and damage that. on my own. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's my big problem. I have I lack the fear gene. I always tell people, so I always end up flying off of something 
You, you kids right in on. your 40s. Uh, <laughs> it's not good. So let's talk a little bit about um, kind of uh, genetic disease, right? And so it's kind of interesting because, Dave, you have Lynch, which is definitely like uh, hereditary. You've built a foundation around it. Um, Brian, you have LFS, which uh, it sounds like there was no family history. It's kind of spontaneous now, but might be. And then, Amanda, you, you have not. Uh, you're, you're waiting, uh, I guess, for the yeah. uh, system to catch up to you to find out yeah. what, if anything's going Pretty on. But there's been, yeah. So h- how do you talk with your family? Like, how important is um, the dialogue with your family and understanding this? And I guess maybe the simplest way to start with that question is, how did you talk to your family in the beginning right around um, cancer? And maybe I'll start with you, Amanda, because it sounds like it's been most recent for you. How, how have you communicated with your family about, you know, finding out you have cancer and talking with well, them? Well, um, my mom was with me initially for my um, colonoscopy. That was the first um, testing that I went for. So she was the first to know. Um, she comes from a background of nursing and oncology, actually. So she, has been great as to understanding everything and she's been very supportive and she kind of eases, takes me down a notch. <laughs> um, I have two kids, they're um, seven and nine. So we've chosen to not tell them that I actually have cancer. They just know that mom's sick. Um, there's something in me that should be there and that I go for my medicine every two weeks. And um, I've been lucky with my treatment. I've been handling it quite well. Um, so they haven't seen me be sick, sick. So they just see me as being tired and mom's going for her medicine. I'll have my chemo pump hooked up to me. So they see all of that. But, um, as far as they know, they don't know about the big C because we were just worried that it would just, um, worry them. My son, especially if he's very, um, he stresses out very easily. So we just decided at the ages that they're at, we'll leave it at what they know, and down the road, I will definitely tell them the whole story, but um, yeah, we've just kind of chosen to keep it this way for now, and um, we think that's what's best for them. Um, Obviously, the rest of my family, they all know. Um, We have lots of little kids in the family, so none of the kids know (laughs) the full story, Um, but other other than that, my in-laws, everything, everyone's been super supportive, and yeah, they've all been, been there for us, so. But yeah, still quite new. Quite new. Yeah. And so, uh, topic. Yeah. so Brian, how about you? Cause this is, you, you were actually just telling us about, and yet another, so you've been through that kind of same thing now many times, right? Um, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's never an easy conversation to have, uh, with your friends and family. And I've had it so many times that um, if <laughs> it it's weird, you know, to, you know, the first time you tell someone you have cancer, it's, it's pretty shocking. And I think everyone's really, um, uh, you know, as far as, you know, my friends and family, everyone was really supportive. Um, and then the second time I told them, yeah, again, totally shocked. And then third and fourth, after a while, it just becomes old hat. And it's, it's almost embarrassing for me to tell people that I have another cancer because it's so unreal. Um, so I, I tend to downplay it now because I'm just trying to, 
I, I'm not, I don't, I don't really want any more <laughs> added focus on it. I'm just trying to plow through and, and get through things. But, um, you know, my p friends and family have all been amazing. My wife, everyone's been super supportive. So it's, they've all been easy to talk to. I just, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a challenge to sometimes to, to, to want to talk about it. Well, it's, it's interesting. You bring up, um, I just asked the question, like, um, do, did you find like people start treating you differently? Um, like, does it change? Like, does, does the world see you differently? Right. You can see, I can see you downplaying it, right. You're telling us like just here on this dialogue too, but does, does it change? Like, I mean, you're still you, right. But the world doesn't see you differently then. Well, I mean, I, I guess I'm not totally sure how to answer that. I, I think I I certainly feel like I'm the same person, but I also feel like um, I, like a changed person to some degree because I have this this huge thing. And um, but I, you know, my friends and friend, family, everyone's still treats me the same. All my friends still, you know give me a hard time about certain things or whatever. So, you know, life goes on, you know, and I don't want to be um, thought of any differently than I, than I've ever been thought of. So. And so Dave, in your case, right, you've actually taken, so I guess I have to ask the question, which is like in the beginning, how did you kind of break the news with your family, but then maybe talk also a little bit about then what led you to advocacy, right? Right. And you're actually, out there with the foundation now um, trying to do education. Like uh, talk about that a little bit. Sure. So um, the, the, with the, the timing of, of my cancers made it, um, you know, situationally uh, absorbable. So, you know, my first colon cancer was when my first son was, you know, barely a year old. So obviously, you know, uh, at the time I was 29, but so we're not gonna have a conversation with him at that age. But as he grew older, <clears throat> you know, he, he just saw me as, as dad. I mean, uh, I kept a schedule that, you know, most people don't normally keep, uh, who, let alone those who've had surgery for cancer or whatnot. Um, and then the other two sons came along. So by the time uh, my second cancer came along and then my Lynch syndrome diagnosis, um, you know, the three boys and my oldest was now, you know, 10, uh, 10 or 11. So um, we took the approach excuse me, that um, we wanted to tell the story. We did not want um, the rumor mill. We wanted to put it out there the way we thought it should be. Um, like, for whatever reason, I'm comfortable in front of the microphone, so I'm more than happy to put myself out there and share my story and, and have the discussion with others, like Brian, the overachiever. Um, so uh, it, it's... Um, it's just been my nature to do so and it's worked out so with but with the kids uh we've always had the conversation uh age appropriate so uh you know now that they're older every and now that we have the foundation everything is out in the open they see me talking to other people they hear me talking to other people obviously there's no phi being shared um but they know that these conversations are taking place with other people going through this and they've been comfortable with it and because of that I now have other people who call me when they want to have that topic of conversation with other families. And uh, I'm very upfront with them saying, 
I don't have the magic, you know, solution to all this. Uh, the family dynamic is the family dynamic. It's going to be difficult. Uh, you know, I joke about it. You know, your kids are going to grow up hating you for anyway. So might as well just throw it out there and give them another reason to do it. But you know, that the reality of it is, it, you know, there, there's, there's a family dynamic, there's brothers, sisters, cousins, everything that comes with it. Uh, just because it's cancer doesn't mean uh, everyone's going to all of a sudden rally around you and, 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 and do everything that's correct or appropriate or say things that's a correct or appropriate. It's still family. Um, yeah. yeah. I think it's um, really interesting what you bring up, which is, um, you know, it used to be, and, and of course this goes back, but what I always heard, and I went through this with both of my, my parents who had cancer um, uh, they didn't really talk about it very much. They didn't want to talk about it very much. I think in that generation in particular, mm -hmm. and it was, um, I think really frustrating at times um, because I would want to talk about stuff e even when they were going through their care and try to talk to their doctors and, and they would just say, oh, no, 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 we don't, we don't want to talk about that. We want to just do, you know, keep our heads down and like, we got to do this right thing. And I think, I think, and I believe this is a good thing. Like we've kind of gotten rid of that stigma from our society, right? It's okay to talk. You know, Dave, you're saying like maybe, or maybe what's the, the maybe. It's, it's all situational still. I mean, it, 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 you know, Brian can chime in, but you know, again, as, as, as a guy, we don't talk about health. Uh, as a guy who went through cancer younger, we really didn't talk about health. Um, so that's, Ultimately, why a lot of us get surprised by this is because we're not thinking about it. We're not talking about it. So, yes, it's better by far. Yeah, I would say over time, like uh, through my experience, it's, it's the discussion. It's uh, it's gotten easier for me anyway. Or I and I found I found that there are a lot more. Um, places to to have that discussion online um, through different um, uh, support groups that weren't necessarily there in the past um, so I, I, there, are, there are a lot more resources for sure so Amanda at the beginning of this now as you started talking are there things that like you're you still like worried about that make you uncomfortable trying to have this discussion your family that are like the points you're like, oh, I don't want to talk about this or I do, or I wish we would go in this direction. Um, um, I mean, like I said, we've haven't had the full on discussion with the kids and everything, but um, I'm just, I've been very positive from day one about the whole thing. So Good. I'm comfortable enough having these conversations with my family and friends and everything and I'm not I mean the first thing my oncologist told me when I got diagnosed was don't worry you're going to be around to see your kids grow up so um I'm stage three and um so once I heard that immediately okay like I can I'm gonna do this and breathe kind of thing and um, yeah, I've just been going with a super positive attitude this whole time and um, so yeah, I, I definitely have open conversations with people about it. They ask me all sorts of things and, um, I'm totally more than open to talk about it. Are there uh, resources that you found in, uh, uh, in, I, I assume it's um, the same in Canada as it's here, like online groups or foundations or, um, particularly support networks or advocacy that you think is like, especially early on has just been really helpful to you. Anything you would just kind of point out or highlight to people? 
Yeah, um, to be honest, um, I'm a part of a lot of groups on Facebook. Um, same with Instagram, connected with people through there. I've connected with people that are local to me, um, people that are in the States as well, and UK, Australia, um, Colon Town, part of, um, lots mm -hmm. of resources there. Um, but yeah, I've, I've definitely flocked to social media to get a lot of support, um, especially with the pandemic. Everything's online right now, so it's been very helpful, right. I have found. Yeah. Yeah, you bring up this really interesting thing. Like, um, we were all going online before the pandemic. Now we all basically just like live live online because this is the only place we have <laughs> to interact with each other. And I'm hoping it's going back the other way. Um, I had that hope before, and it was wrong. Um, um, so maybe this time. But I think it's taught us all to interact in this kind of new media, um, and I think to have much more meaningful dialogue that way. Um, is it? Has it also been like helpful for your family members, right, to participate? Are they part of this? Is this, you, you know, how much is it like the support comes from your family versus kind of this new set of friends or, or contacts that you have? Um, I'd say informational-wise, definitely social media um, for me. If I want personal support, I guess, um, my family. I would go to, but um, they're all there, you know, to help us out with the kids, everything. But as far as information, reassuring myself, all those kind of things, I, I flock more to um, my groups on Facebook and Colin and all that. Got it. And so Brian, they're going through, they're going through what I'm going through, right? So they understand it. Right. What's that? No, sorry. It just, I, I interrupted you. Apologies. So I was yeah, going to ask Brian with, with LFS though, well, is, is like, is there the same sort of information sources? Like, uh, uh, yeah, well, uh, my there are a couple different, I shared a link with you guys uh, to the LFS Association Great. website that has uh, um, some information just uh, about the genetic condition. But there, there is a, a LFS support group on Facebook um, that uh, I, I go to, uh, you know, often uh, for information just um, you know to see what other people's experiences are you know when I first found out about um, that I had this I, I definitely went there to ask you know as many questions as I could because these people oftentimes knew more than the medical community um, so it was a really good resource for, for me to, to be able to do that. It's uh, it's tough, too, because, you know, it's a great resource for information, but it's also uh, where people go to share their, you know, not-so-great experiences, which can be really, really tough to to be a part of that and, and see that because, you know, for people who have what I have, there's a lot of uh, childhood cancers. So just heartbreaking stories that people are sharing, which, you know, can be really difficult sometimes to, um, to, take, to take it all in. You know, the, the information that you're trying to get, you know, and the experiences, all of it, you, you have to, you kind of have to take the good with the bad. And it's, um, it's uh, yeah, but I'm glad that it, it's there. So it's, it's definitely been a valuable resource for me. 
So Dave, you, you've actually taken it, I think, even a level further, right, in terms of actually setting up, and we were chatting about this a little bit earlier, like a formal registry and research. So yeah, maybe just share with a little bit like your thoughts about um, kind of social education and making kind of advocacy important, like people learning from each other, and then maybe combining a little bit of what Brian said, which is, you know, if you go on online about any topic, right, there's like a lot of negative information sometimes, right? Because that's what, when people are emotionally charged and kind of vent, right, or get all that out there, um, and maybe not as much as the positive, but you've really, through your foundation, been trying to, I guess, focus on the, what are the things we can learn and do and help. Um, uh, so maybe you could share a little bit about that uh, with us. Sure. So uh, you, you hit it right on the head is that with um, the the blessing and, and the curse of social media is the amount of information that is out there. Um, we, we do have a, 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 you know, a private Facebook group and, and we do monitor the other um, groups that are out there on Facebook because they are you know, part of our, our, our world. Um, but the registry goes into much more of a, you know, what can be done with with the data than just just a Facebook page. Uh, and we're very proud of that. And we, we take it very seriously and it's very private uh, based upon the privacy settings for the patients. Um, so uh, nothing is nothing is revealed without the patient's consent, um, which is what we feel is appropriate. Um, you know, in, in, in the world of social media, you know, you see, uh, I mean, I see it almost on a daily basis. Someone passes, I mean, this is the reality of it. I've been in this, you know, you know I don't want to call it a game, but in this world for 25 years now, uh, people get older, uh, people pass away. It's that's the reality of it. But also the reality of it is at 54 years old, I mean, I'm good enough shape. I can still play soccer or go mountain biking with Brian and hurt myself. Um, but you know, and then there are guys who pass away of heart attacks in their fifties. So it's, it's all part of one big, you know, um, cloud of stuff that you have to sift through uh and and you know again we've chosen a certain route for uh managing uh, those who want to be involved in in the lynch syndrome world um as amanda alluded to uh with colon town there's also uh, i believe lynchville uh which is part of colon town as well um it's again much more of an open facebook community and that has its role um and we're we're, we're comfortable with uh with our role yeah, awesome. Anything um, you wish was out there? Like, what's missing right now? So, if you think about all, so there's there's like an enormous amount of resources. Some good, some bad, most in the middle, right? Um, what have we not? Where is there opportunity that you think that you're like? I went looking for something and I couldn't find it. Um, and uh, maybe I'll start with Brian first. Uh, just kind of call out some names and keep us in order. <laughs> um. That's a good question. I mean, there's so much information out there. It's hard to imagine not being able to find something. Um, uh, but I guess um, I'm constantly reading different uh, articles, studies, different things. Uh, and there, um, uh, you know, they're, they're all over the place. Um, so I don't, I'm not really sure how to answer that question exactly because uh, I've been able to find most of what I'm looking for, and sometimes I I dig down these rabbit holes and 
and um, and find out more than I was looking for. Um, How do you mean so, by more? What what's a rabbit hole to you? What do you? When you say you dig down these rabbit holes, you're you're thinking about something. Oh no, not not anything in particular. But sometimes I'll be reading about oh a particular sub you know maybe this particular supplement that's supposed to be really good for activating this um, you know this p53 gene. But in order to take you know, in order, if you take this supplement, then you have to take these three other supplements <laughs> to help activate that one. And then, so you, I'm just like reading about all these different things. And before I know it, I forget, you know, where I started off. <laughs> and uh, so there, uh, therein lies the rabbit hole, I guess. But um, there's, I think, uh, you know, Dr. Google has a wealth of information. So uh, I, I've pretty much been able to, to find most of what I've been looking for. And, and I'm, and I'm constantly looking. So um, sometimes it's tough to, uh, to turn away <laughs> and, and not think about it. Do you, do you do that, Amanda? Do you do a lot of research on Google? Is that, are you searching yeah. for different things? Way too much. <laughs> Way too much. Same thing. You kind of go down the rabbit hole. It's like information overload. You don't really necessarily know always what to believe. Um, ultimately I run everything by my oncologist in the end. Um, but yeah, no, I agree. It's just, it's, there's a lot out there and it's hard to know what you can kind of trust and what you can't. And like you said, one, one supplement can lead to a whole bunch more and, um, yeah, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> it's hard to know. Dave, how about you? What are we missing? Well, uh, obviously, I'm biased, but mine is a, a relatively uh, easy one to pinpoint is that uh, the amount of people who don't know their genetic history um, is, to me, unfortunate, uh, especially in the Lynch world. So, you know, if, if statistically, uh, you know, one in 279 Americans has a Lynch mutation and, and 95% don't know about it, that's a huge number. That, that's a million people. And you know, if, you know, you, if, if you can take a percentage of that, you can take a slice of that, take a large slice of that, take a huge chunk of it. I mean, just imagine it's, it's a matter of math. Um, so for, for my biased opinion, what's missing is, is, is the amount of people who don't know their genetic makeup. Um, um, we can go down the next rabbit hole, which would be assuming we all start learning our genetic makeup, what happens to us insurance wise financially and everything that comes with it but for the purposes of just that question i'm going to go with knowing uh your genetic history yes ignorance is not bliss in this case it yeah. is not it is not yeah. um so this is a really great discussion so i want to thank you all i i, I also want to maybe add some this is my favorite question to ask and i ask everyone uh uh this every time um so it's it's uh so bear with me. But um, what I guess is if you have kind of one lesson um, that you got out of what you've been going through, right? And we have what what I love about this discussion with people at kind of different stages here, right? We're all in, in different places. What's that take home? So like someone who watches this says, oh, that that's that was a useful. So um, and uh, I'm going to pick on you again, Amanda, and start with you. If you have like a one one most key message for you when you think about talking to other cancer patients and their families out there, what's, what's that key message? Um, I would say definitely to be your own advocate. Um, you definitely need to fight for yourself and, um, 
you know, if you think something's wrong, you need to investigate it. Don't just push it aside. And um, I feel like I was pretty fortunate in terms of when I got symptoms, my doctor didn't really question me. She was like, okay, yeah, let's send you for testing. But I know a lot of people get denied that and um, end up being, you know, it's um, staged further by the time they finally figure it out. But um, yeah, your own advocates, um, keep up with positive attitude. I like to think my cancer is already gone at this point. I don't have scans until December coming up. But um, yeah, be positive and uh, don't, don't give up. Yeah, it's wonderful. And Brian, how about you? You know, uh, I would say make sure that you find a medical team that you really feel good about and mm -hmm. trust because uh, in my journey, I've dealt with a ton of doctors and, you know, not all of them have been great <laughs> and not all of them I felt like really listened to my concerns and, and acted on them. Um, and now I'm in a place where um, I'm going to University of uh, Colorado Hospital, and it's just, I can't believe how amazing it is. You know, everyone I've dealt with there, all, all my, my team has just been incredible. And I, they, you know, I can see that they really, really care about their patients, and I trust them, um, you know, more. I, I feel great about going there, and I really put my uh, trust in them. So I would say that would be the biggest thing. Make sure that you find a, a great, uh, great doctor, a great medical team that's on on your side. And you know, on top of that, as Amanda was saying, you really do have to be your own advocate. If you feel like something isn't quite right, you need to pursue that and let that be known to your team, so that it's not overlooked. Thank you, Brian and Dave. Well, since they stole my two good ones, uh, I'm going to go with. No, Gave I, you the I, hardest, I, the hardest slot. Nah, well, I, I think it's a good segue. Actually, I, I like to say find what works for you, um, and and that could be uh, you know an all encompassing thing. It can be a very specific thing. So um, it can range from uh, it, so treating cancer or really any illness or, or something similar um, is not just treating the cancer and, and having it removed. It's also treating you as a person. So uh, if you find something that works for you therapeutically, you know, whether it's painting, playing soccer, riding, the boat, you know, riding a, a, a mountain bike, uh, and that works for you, then, then that works for you. If it's talking about it with others and that works for you, that's great. It's having good days and it's having bad days where we've all been there. Uh, but as uh, I'm not sure whether it was Amanda or Brian or both, but uh, having people around you understand you and will you know work with you both you know as as medically as well as personally, um, that's everything. So yeah. Well, thank you. Hey, when thank you all, thank you, Dave. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Amanda. I really, really appreciate your time, and um, thank you for sharing your insights and uh, being part of this with me today. I, I really appreciate it. So, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you all. Yeah. Thanks thank for having us. All right. Well, thank you all. Um, really appreciated it. Um, and uh, it takes about a week, is what I was told, for this stuff to go through whatever production magic sort of stuff happens, um, which I'm peripherally aware of, um, meaning they show it to me afterwards. 
Um, so within about a week or so, um, there should be content up and you guys will get links and, and that sort of, um, thing to it. And, um, yeah, Dave, actually, I want to reach out to you about registries. Um, just speaking off the cuff here. Um, sure. we actually work with, and Amanda mentioned it, Colon Town, yep. uh, in Lynchtown. We've actually, as of last week, sorry, I have a blur of time. Time has lost all sense of, I've lost all sense of time since the pandemic because every day is kind of pretty similar in some ways now. Um, but we started a collaboration with Colon Town as a company. We've actually been implementing a registry um, for Colon Town patients who choose to participate on our platform. Okay. And so if Lynchville is part of that, we might be able to combine with some of the work that you guys have been doing just to aggregate um, some more data. So that that I think might be an interesting piece in its early days for that um, okay. program. So uh, love to reach out to you. And Brian, you're in Colorado. I was going to say we should go biking, but um, uh, where are you? I'm in, uh, I actually live in uh, Oakland. So like, oh, okay. uh, North Oakland. I was just up uh, biking in, in Marin. Okay, nice. Yeah. Did you do road biking or all mountain? Or? Uh, mostly mountain bike. I'm, a mountain. I'm more of a road guy. I, I actually, the cars scare me less than the trees for whatever reason. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, we, I spent a little time, I think it was in Mill Valley. It seemed like a big road biking community. Up it there. is. Yeah. Well, it's just like the hills are right there. And, you know, on the road, like the big thing is like, I can go up this hill faster than you can. It's like, yeah. let's play that game over and over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Right. So good. Well, thank you all. Um, have a wonderful day. I really appreciate it. And uh, nice to meet you all today. Sounds good. Yeah, okay. Thank you. See you guys. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.